Oftentimes, students feel intimidated to reach out to alumni who hold high-up positions at big-time companies. They figure they're too busy, or they feel unprepared to have the conversation. And I get it, because it can be nerve-wracking. But as Rob Kane points out in this episode, do not be nervous. These people were once in your shoes, and they're happy to chat. Rob is one of the most approachable executives I have ever met. He was once an English major here, roaming campus, tailgating, going to football games, and just trying to figure it out, just like you all. He went on to hold leadership positions at major organizations like AT&T, Coca-Cola, PwC, and now he's with McKinsey. In this episode, Rob looks back at his time at ND and his career as a whole and reflects on the things and the people who made him who he was today and who helped him the most. Listen as Rob gives sage advice and talks about the leverage he has with a liberal arts degree and how having that English background gave him the confidence to be a true career chameleon. Enjoy the episode. Rob Kane, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us this morning. You're in town for the Clemson game, and uh, by the time this episode airs, my assumption is that we're looking back on the weekend fondly and celebrating a huge 30-point win by the Irish. <clears throat> and now we'll cut that, and then we'll go to the next one. Oh, shoot. We lost. We got cheated. <laughs> we got robbed. The refs blew it. So now we have both intros ready to go. Um, <laughs> but let's dive right in, Rob. Um, so if you... We're to pull Notre Dame students right now, and we ask them to pick a song that sums up their current status. I imagine many of them would pick Under Pressure by Queen. You and I have talked a lot about the pressure students face these days, be it school pressure, career pressure, parent pressure, peer pressure, and especially pressure from within. And it can be very stressful to be a student. Now, at a lot a lot of that does stem from the fact that uh, at the end of these four years, you're supposed to get a job. And with this in mind, many students come to Notre Dame and try to pick a major that gives them the best chance to get their dream job. But as you and I have discussed, major doesn't equal career. So can you just tell me a little bit about your path to Notre Dame and the advice that you got from your dad when you were choosing your major? Yeah, thanks, Jared. And thanks very much for having me. And I certainly hope that we have the right outcome for the Clemson weekend. The um, Yeah, so... Your question, I mean, starting on pressure is an interesting one because, as you know, I have a junior uh, daughter here. Uh, she's headed to law school, but her friends are certainly in the recruiting activity system now. And I'm constantly surprised, as you and I talked about, at the level of pressure that they feel and, quite frankly, the level of pressure that they, um, that they put on themselves. Um, I certainly remember the activity system from when I was here graduating in, in 91, so starting in 90 and 91, but I don't remember at all sort of the acute pressure that, that um, our students seem to feel today, nor do I sort of profess to know exactly why. Um, <laughs> I, I, had the, um, I had the amazing good fortune, as we talked about, as getting, you know, this otherworldly advice from my father. At the end of my freshman year, I was trying to figure out um, what I was going to major in. And my father just randomly asked me one day, what do you plan to major in? And I told him that I was going to do economics or something in, uh, something in business. And he said, why do you want to do that? And I said, um, I, I want to do it because I want to get a job when I graduate, Dad. And my dad said, well, that's the worst reason <laughs> to study something. He said, what do you really want to study? And I said, well, I really want to be an English major. I love to read and write, and that's what I'd like to do. And he said, well, you're not going to get another opportunity to spend four years doing exactly what you love to do, so why don't you do that, and we'll figure out the job thing later. 
uh, and it was an, uh, and maybe that's why I didn't feel that acute pressure, Jared. It was a little bit of a pressure valve to have that level of permission from him um, to sort of invest in learning and the passion that I cared a lot about, again, reading and writing. And, um, and I sort of figured out the rest of it later. I love that. That's a great answer. Yeah. Rob, speaking of pressure, I can't imagine anything more stressful at this point than graduating without a job. But the fact is that many people don't have anything lined up after graduation because companies' hiring decisions are made much later, and that's exactly what happened to you. So you graduated without a job because you weren't sure if you wanted to go to law school or what exactly you wanted to do. Can you tell me a bit about how you discovered your path and how you got started with your career? Yeah, so um, again, it was a little bit of of good fortune. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, I had moved back home and was looking at opportunities. And I actually just came across an opportunity in consulting with a small boutique firm in Pittsburgh, um, which is my hometown. That company no longer exists in that form. It's been acquired a couple of times and it's now part of a much larger um, uh, consulting firm, global consulting firm. But I I went for the interview on a whim Mm -hmm. and um, and liked it, and they hired me, and I, you know, I went working there. So I, 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 I'd like to tell people it was much more sort of purposeful and focused, and I had a short list of companies that I wanted to go to, and I went through some rigorous preparation, but it, it really wasn't. Like, sort of my, my idea of law school um, just sort of diminished over time. Like, I didn't really have a passion for it, and um, I went into consulting, specifically technology consulting, and just fell in love with it. And I've been in and around technology consulting for uh, for the last 30 years. The technology background, <clears throat> I think, is interesting, too, because this is obviously the, we're shooting a podcast where the bulk of the listeners are people who grew up with an Apple iPhone in their crib. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about Apple Club. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> funny. Exactly. So, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it wasn't the most popular social club on campus. No. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I went in to meet girls is why I, why I, I did that. It's club. like basically being a cheerleader. Um, it started with three guys and I think ended with eight my freshman year, <laughs> something like that. But um, yeah, so um, so my father was in, in technology, specifically in telecommunications his entire career. Um, he served in the Navy in Vietnam. He enlisted straight out of high school. Um, they trained him to be um, uh, like a communication specialist. He came out of the Navy, went to work. His company sent him to night school, uh, which was AT&T, and he spent um, his entire 33-year career working in, in AT&T. So I just happened to be exposed my entire life to technology. It's not the technology we think of today with iPhones and computers and the Internet, um, but it was technology uh, all the same. And I used to go into his office and see all of the uh, tech, the switching equipment and technology at AT&T, and it always fascinated me. Um, at some point when I was in middle school, um, AT&T was one of the first companies to launch a personal computer along with IBM and, and HP and others. And we, we had the good fortune of having one at the house. And so I wasn't an engineer. I was an English major. I did not come up um, through computer science. It really was was just a burgeoning field when I was even here. And um, I just got really comfortable with technology and using uh, that personal computer and that PC. And so by the time I came 
to Notre Dame. I brought a computer with me. I brought a, a printer with me. And I was very popular in Morrissey as having a printer, which was kind of a cool way to meet people. Um, <laughs> but um, it sounds funny now that they're, you don't even print anything anymore, but you had to print all your papers, right? And so if somebody had a printer and you didn't have to walk to La Fortune, which was where the, the computer center was at the time with printers, um, people would come to your room and say, can I print my term paper? So um, did you charge them? I didn't charge them in retrospect. <laughs> I should have charged them. Lucy, this is why you'll be immediately more successful than I was. Exactly. I missed the business opportunity for I could have been Kinko's if I'd have done things right. Um, yeah. And so, um, yeah. And so most of the computer labs on campus at the time um, were using uh, early Apple computers, not like they have today, not MacBooks or MacBook Pros, but. Um, uh, the original Macintosh computers, and I um, took a job on campus working in the computer labs. Again, I was super comfortable. I would sit there and study, and students would be on the computers. If they needed help with something, I would help them. But but really, it was it was just, you know, getting paid to study. And, um, and one day I saw an ad for um, the Apple Computer Club. So Apple Computer, in its very early days, came on campus and were trying to start campus clubs. It was a big part of their marketing to convert young people to Apple, right? And so um, I sort of ended up going over and raising my hand and became the president, the first president of the Apple Computer Club uh, at, at Notre Dame. What was that campaign like? Yeah, I mean, it was rigorous. There was a computer science major that really wanted the job, but my marketing was better. No, I, I think I, I think I ran unopposed, as they say. <laughs> it was, it's unlike politics today. I was able to run a fully centrist campaign. Yeah, so I, just a, a group of friends, and you know, we'd have meetings, and we got people involved in the computer science department, and it just became a fun thing. Apple would come to campus maybe once a quarter, and throw an event and as they were growing as a company. So it's just a, a fun way to, you know, get a little deeper in technology while I was at school. It was sort of a, another sort of, you know, serendipitous thing. This is a cool point too that I wanna, I wanna stick on for a moment because <clears throat> you, you came in with this idea of, I need to pick a major because it, it equals job and your dad kind of helped you reset. You did English because you loved it, but you also dabbled in what you also love, with his, which is technology, which then led you to AT&T, which then led you to this really cool interaction with Netscape. So oh, yeah. can you tell me a little bit about that and then kind of how that helped launch you into the startup world even? Yeah, got, so, yeah, so, I mean, that was an opportunity missed. The, the fact that I didn't roll up here in my Lamborghini today, <laughs> should tell you how, how, how well that story <laughs> but, panned out. But, um, yeah, so I... Um, I, when I graduated school, I went to work in consulting. I was there maybe 20 months, and I got a phone call on a, on a Wednesday, I'll never forget it, from my father to say, hey, you have an interview with AT&T on Friday. Don't screw it up. Like That was the whole conversation. <laughs> I, I, I didn't solicit an interview or apply for anything, and he sort of engineered this in the background. Um, and so I interviewed on a Friday, was hired, um, and was lucky enough to get into sort of a leadership development program um, where you have sort of a mentor and they rotate you through different roles. Um, and, and one of the early roles I did was at Bell Laboratories. Um, and at Bell Laboratories, I was part of a group called Sales and Marketing Technology Solutions. Again, I'm an English major. I'm not an engineer. Right. I'm sitting with a group of the world's finest you know, PhD, computer scientists, engineers, and my job was um, building all of the requirements for the software that they had had to build. 
Well, the person that led this organization had um, uh, had a relationship with the founder of Netscape. Mm. And the founder asked us if our group would, um, would pilot the very first version of a browser ever. And so we had it installed on maybe 15 of our workstations and we would, we would play, you know, online in our spare time really around the birth of the internet, right? So we're talking 94 um, timeframe, something like that. And it was um, 93 even. And it was um, truly remarkable. And, and this was even before the big dot-com boom around 2000 and Netscape was going to go public. And they offered for all of us in the pilot to get in on what's called friends and family, which is the first um, you know, access to shares in a company pre-IPO. And I was a, you know, a 24-year-old kid that has just started his second job. I, I didn't have any money. Um, and so I, I, again, called my father and I said, hey, I, and my dad had no idea what any of this was. And I called him. I said, what do you think? And I said, I'm thinking about <laughs> taking a cash advance on a credit card for $10,000 <laughs> because everybody around me thinks this is the greatest idea. And he said, no, I don't think that's a very good, <laughs> a very, a very good idea. And um and so I ended up not doing it and sort of walking past that opportunity. And uh, it would, as you know, would have been an unbelievable opportunity to have a pre-IPO uh, shares in Netscape. But. Well, it still worked out for you in the end yeah. because you used that opportunity to kind of catapult. And this is this is the reason I'm drilling down on this is because uh, students are starving for a linear path. And I don't think you took a linear path. Just one begat the other. So you do that. Then you join startups. And then you just send an application to be CIO of Coke or how did that work? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. <laughs> <That's not. laughs> yeah. So th there's a, there's a few chapters in between <laughs> Netscape and, and that, but I, I love this notion of a linear path because not only did I not take a linear path, but if I had to go back and do it again, I still wouldn't choose a linear path. That's it, awesome to hear. And, um, and for me, I have a really short attention span and it's part of the reason why I like consulting, which we, which we talk about. And I, um, I crave variety. And I crave sort of the beginning, middle, and end of things. It's just sort of how I'm wired. I don't even know if that's a thing or what it's called, but I, I need that. Um, and so um, that nonlinear path, that sort of random walk, uh, if you will, just suits me and energizes me and, and has worked well for me. And I can't even imagine a linear path, quite honestly. Like it, 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 I have a physical reaction to it. I just know that I would get bored or lose interest or... You know, at one point, if it didn't align to my passion at the time, it would be hard for me. So um, to answer your question directly, Jared, so, so after, um, after the Bell Laboratories experiment, uh, experiment, I rotated to... Um, I love that you call it experiment. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it, you'll laugh, but, you know, when I was there and writing the requirements for the sales software, the engineers called me the sales bozo <laughs> because I wasn't an engineer. I couldn't write code. You know, I was part of the team, but like I was on a different level than them as you know, I, I was doing all of the front end requirements, gathering work for the software, uh, me and one other guy. And um, I loved it. It was great fun, but I I wasn't the same as like the the engineers. It was always a funny thing. Um, and then I rotated to uh, AT&T headquarters. I did a couple different roles there in what was called offer management for some of the telecommunications uh, offerings. And this was at the time that 
uh, AT&T as sort of a monolithic um, conglomerate was breaking up and the, and, the, and the Bell companies were being formed. And this is before even wireless had taken off, um, you know, before the birth of AT&T Wireless. It was a long time ago. And um, at the time, one of the companies that we were working with was a small, excuse me, private company, uh, privately owned company that um, me and two other uh, of my friends at AT&T thought could make a really interesting startup and public company and IPO. Now we're getting closer to the dot-com age, right? So now we're 98, companies are going public before the dot-com boom and 99 and 2000. And so, um, yeah, Jared, we, we, I, I guess I wanted to be Netscape. I wanted another, I wanted another bite at that apple, I think. And so we, we left and we tried to take a company public. Again, we spent 20 months going through all of the motions to, to grow revenue, to build a team, to acquire customers, to do everything we wanted to do to, to go public. And, um, and after 20 months, the founder said, I changed my mind. So the, the founder, um, said, um, you know, I decided I don't want to be a public company. I don't want a public board. I don't want to go through the scrutiny of being a public company and have outside investors and outside pressures. I want to stay private. And he's like, and you guys are welcome to stay along for the ride, but, um, but it's not going to work out. And so I, it was a weird feeling because we had invested a lot and we thought that there was sort of a honeypot at the end of this. And, and we were working hard towards, you know, that beginning, middle and an end. And, um, and the rug just got pulled out. He just changed his mind. And so uh, I'm still friends with the founder. The company still exists. Uh, it's a really big, successful company now, but it's still private. Hmm. And so, um, and so it's validating in one sense and that it was a good idea. It's validating in another sense that I've maintained that friendship with the founder all yeah. of these, all of these years. Um, but it didn't work out exactly that way. So, um, there was another opportunity to, you know, take another step in that random walk or in that mm-hmm. nonlinear path. And it led you to being the CIO of Coca-Cola in Germany. Yeah. So one more stop in between. Okay. So, 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 so yeah, there's lots of steps in my random walk, Lucy. So, um, yeah, so I went to work for uh, a tele- another telecommunications company, another technology company. I had responsibility for uh, emerging technologies. Um, and I led, I had the idea for and led the acquisition of a Berlin-based company, a private company in Berlin that our public company acquired. Um, I led the diligence and did the transaction. Um, and then I led part of the integration of that German company into, into our U.S. company. And um, in doing so, the CEO asked me if I would go over and work in Berlin with my wife and daughter, my Ella, who's a junior here at Notre Dame now. Uh, so we moved to Berlin when Ella was, was two. And, um, and while in Berlin, to answer your question, Lucy, I was approached by a board member, a German board member for Coca-Cola and asked if I would be the CIO for Coca-Cola Germany. And so it meant localizing with our family. So not being an expat of a U.S. company, but localizing as a, as a, as a, uh, as a, like a full-time permanent resident in Germany. Um, which we did. So we took the leap and I went to be the CIO for Coca-Cola Germany, which I did for uh, four years and then was eventually promoted to be the, the global corporate CIO for Coca-Cola in Atlanta um, and did that for three years. So the, a few uh, speed bumps in the way <laughs> and a few twists and turns, but that's how I ended up in, in Atlanta with, with Coca-Cola. Cool. And I think a lot of people at that point would have stopped there and called it an incredibly successful career. 
um, the CIO of a major brand like Coca-Cola is the pinnacle for a lot of people. And one thing I would, I was, you know, fascinated about when we've spoken in the past has just been this idea of, I think it's so important uh, to your career happiness to find a company culture that you really fit well into and you love being a part of. So you're at Coke for three years um, and then walked away and went back into the consulting game. Mm. So talk a little bit about, because this is to the point that we try to tell students all the time is um, it's a lifelong journey career mm. and you're going to make shifts and you know, you could be 50, 40, 60, whatever, and still not understand like what you're supposed to be when you grow up. So Talk about the motivation to, to leave Coca-Cola, leave a big-time role, and go back into the consulting game. Yeah, so um, so first first of all, I still, um, you know, truly love Coca-Cola. I, 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 I'm glad you have Coke water here. And it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was definitely on purpose. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah. you know, Dasani's a Coke brand, and you didn't make me drink Aquafina, even though it's just a <laughs> podcast. I appreciate that. Um, Dasani's the sponsor of this episode now. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> the um, Yeah, so... There was something super cool about working for the world's most valuable brand. They were still the most valuable brand at the time. You know, it eventually became Apple. Um, uh, and I think now Coke is in the top three with Apple and Google. It's, um, but there, there was something super rewarding about getting that role and doing that job. And, but, um, you know, what I would caution or, or co- coach young people would be, you know, the title and the role in the company definitely does not equal um, a level of contentment and satisfaction and belonging, right? And so um, I, I found Coca-Cola headquarters, re- respectfully, to be one of the lowest trusts environments that I've ever worked in. It really didn't fit who I was as a person. Um, I had an experience, uh, I think we talked about it last time, in my first week there where I was put in to a really uncomfortable situation by an executive that uh, sent me an email, you know, asking my opinion about something, copying a couple other executives. I responded to that email seemingly innocently. You know, I was still moving back from Berlin. I was unpacking boxes in my office. Uh, it was my first week at, at headquarters. I answer the email. I go back to unpacking. Uh, my boss's uh, assistant calls and said, hey, you know, boss wants to see you. Can you walk over? So I walked over and and he said to me, hey, Rob, why did you just answer that email? And I was sort of stupefied. I thought it was like a trick question or, or something. I didn't know. I, I, I said, um, you know, I don't, I don't understand why. He said, um, well, what you didn't know is that the person that sent you the email was having a big sort of political disagreement with the other two people. But he sort of knew where you stood on this issue. So he sort of pulled you into the fight uh, on his side unknowingly. And, um, and I said... I said, well, you know, how, how was I supposed to know that? And, you know, it was a pretty straightforward question. And my boss, trying to be helpful, and he was an amazing boss who's now since passed, but um, he, he said, Rob, two rules now that you're at, 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 a, at uh, Coca-Cola headquarters. First rule is never answer an email. I'm like, well, how's that work? <laughs> and he's like, well, if you have to answer an email, only and always answer last. And he says, that way you can see how everybody else feels on an issue and then you can weigh in more safely, right? And to me, that didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Like, and, it, it, and it's funny because I stayed another almost three years and um, I, I never felt fully comfortable. Like, 
you know, I talk, the reason I love Notre Dame is I still feel a part of this community in a loving way. And I've been sort of searching for that um, over and over. And it clear that that wasn't, it was, it was clear that that wasn't it for me. And so I confided, I spoke to my boss again, who was an amazing boss and, and mentor. And he offered me another role um, uh, within Coca-Cola, another large role. And the person that had the role currently that was moving out was living in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Mm. Right. And, um, and it was a hundred percent travel. Well, by that time, our Amelia, our other daughter was, was, was born. And I said, you know, I, I don't want to travel hundred percent of the time globally. Um, now that we have Amelia at home and he said, Rob, why don't you go back to consulting? Like you've always loved you know, consulting and problem solving and the variety. Why don't you look at private equity or look at consulting where you can get back to doing the things that you wanted? And he was super supportive of me looking and doing that. And, and so I eventually left Coke. Wow. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's really amazing. I didn't realize that um, you had an opportunity to move to Kuala Lumpur. That's where my dad was based for... Um, like 25 years, like in Southeast Asia, that area. And yeah. K- it is 100% travel. I it, can. Yeah. K- KL's cool. That. It's a great airport. Great I, I, like, I like Malaysia. I like KL. Um, Malaysia's a great country. You can always tell somebody who's had a career just in sales or big time business when they talk about cities based on their airport and how great the airport is. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's a good airport. There's lots of green in the airport. It's not as green as Changi in Singapore. Mm, Singapore's but the best airport Sing- I've been to. Yeah, Singapore's the best airport. But They got an uh, indoor waterfall, Jared. They do. <laughs> Butterfly garden. Do they have a Chick-fil-A, though? The they food do, they, Chick-fil-A, <laughs> hasn't, Chick-fil-A hasn't made its way to Asia yet. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a huge Chick-fil-A fan. Ch- Chick-fil-A is a Coke uh, co-customer, so I, I appreciate that too. But the, uh, yeah, so the food in Singapore is the best in the whole oh. world. Oh, <laughs> it's, yes. It's crazy. I don't like Malaysian food, though, no offense. I, I mean, like, that's fine. Yeah, I like Thai food a lot better. I like Thai food. Yeah. I like how Singapore is just like a melting pot of all these different foods. Yeah, it's, it's like a, the best of every culture around it. Yeah, and I think it's the best street food that I've had in Asia. The Hawker, Newton Hawker yeah, Center? exactly. We kind of digress, but no. But this yeah. is like a spinoff uh, uh, podcast now of airports oh. and food and yeah, all that. You know, Amsterdam's pretty good too yeah. for an airport. Well, you go. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll connect the dots back to, back to our theme of this nonlinear thing in this random walk, because of the the worlds in which I've lived and how and how I've uh, I've done it, Coca Cola and and McKinsey specifically. My random walk has taken me to fifty nine countries. Mm-hmm. So I've worked in or played or lived in 59 countries. It's shaped my entire worldview and who I am. And that's why I can talk about street food and singing. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. And I, I really relate to that because I feel like I've been blessed by the opportunities my parents provided by moving me abroad. I was doing the math with my dad because I'm applying to the CIA job and they wanted to know every country I've been to. And I think it's around 30, and I don't know how many 20-year-olds can say that. Yeah, so, so you, you you should definitely talk to my Ella because I think that's about <laughs> her her count. But I'm glad you see it as a, I'm glad you see it as a gift. There's no doubt about it. It is definitely a gift. Yeah. So Rob, you've been so open and honest with us, and we are really appreciative of that. Getting this advice from someone like yourself is invaluable, and I'm sure our listeners would agree. So I'm curious if 19-year-old Rob was listening to this episode. What are the biggest pieces of advice you'd want to share with him? 
Um, the, the first thing that I would say is you have to put, especially if you're in the situation of graduating without a job, like if I frame it with that context, um, I would have people have a little bit of perspective, right? So um, you may feel disadvantaged for not having sort of a career locked up or having a job or, or, or having some level of certainty for when you graduate. But the other thing that I'll tell you is that you're still the luckiest people on the planet. I, I mean, you've graduated from one of the finest universities in the world with the strongest, most active, most caring alumni network on the 100%. planet. Truly. And so, um, you know, it, it's really easy for us to compare ourselves only to the people around us. But it's important that you, you know, compare yourself to the broader set of 19-year-olds who may not had, have had the good fortune of going here or the good fortune of, of plugging, into, um, uh, plugging into our network. Um, every single place I go, I seek out an, a Notre Dame person. I mean, yeah. literally everywhere I go. The, the community inside McKinsey for Notre Dame is active and strong. And, you know, even the funny football banter, like I'm serving a client with an Ohio State guy and a <laughs> Michigan guy, and every single call is like a – and these are senior executives. are like shots at one another. And so I, that 19-year-old just needs to know that that's what's out there for mm -hmm. them, right? It's not – you don't need to grab the first rung of a straight ladder. You can climb a rope up right. a twisty hill. Line. So yeah. talk to me more about networking with the Notre Dame alumni community. Because most people feel like they, can they can't research a company as well as the company can research them. So what would you suggest um, would be the best way for Notre Dame students to get that understanding of a company? So the first thing that I would say is know that the person you reach out to will respond to you. Mm -hmm. Like... I think the fear is oh, I can't reach out to that person because they have a CXX title or they work for Goldman or McKinsey or Google. You know, they're never going to respond to that. And that could not be further from the truth. It is an absolute no downside, no regrets move to, mm -hmm. to make that first move. And what you don't realize is that people will appreciate it. I respond to every single email I get from a Notre Dame student, even a Mendoza MBA um, wow. student that's a, a little different population than than undergrad, I respond to every single one of them. I thank them for reaching out and their interest, and I make time for everybody. And so, you know, I, I don't know if every alum makes time for everybody, but I would say more do than don't. And so, um, you know, not to get super tactical, but LinkedIn is an amazing resource. Yeah. Most of these initial um, reach outs to me come from LinkedIn. They ask if I could make time for, uh, for them. I give them my McKinsey email and I say, if you're interested in a conversation, email me and my assistant will get us time. And everyone that does that gets time with me. And um, some of them, some of them turn into interviews or opportunities at McKinsey. Some of them turn into, um, you know, opportunities in other places. Um, all of them result in sort of a new contact mm -hmm. that that person can reach out to me if they ever need anything. But um what I almost always do is pass the ball. Like if somebody wants to go to a different, uh, someone wants to go to a, a different company, someone wants to go to Coca-Cola or somebody wants to go to AT&T, I can point them to a bunch of Notre Dame people that are there for them to, to start. So you just have to overcome that first bit of fear to, to reach out mm -hmm. because the community will take care of you if you reach out to it, I promise.
And we'll be sharing your email with our oh, 3 yeah, million was, weekly I listeners. I was just going to say, yeah, you, heard it, you heard it first here, guys. Bombard has LinkedIn. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, the, the, the problem is not LinkedIn. It's the paparazzi, Jared, more than, right. <laughs> more than, more than anything. Like, they're in the room now, actually. I know, yeah. Right. The cameras are flashing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So Rob, this time with you has been so inspiring and I can't thank you enough. We have now reached the final segment of our show where we ask you three rapid fire questions to get your off the cuff responses. Wow. Okay. Which is actually six questions and you can take your time. Yes. The way it's been going every episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. All right. Jerry. All right. First one's from me. I feel like, uh, and I dabbled in this a little bit, obviously not to your level, um, with consulting. I think a ton of students want to work in consulting. And when I push back and say, oh, why? They're a little bit like, well, I don't really know what consulting is. So, Rob, my actual, my first question is, what is consulting and what type of person is good at it? So, I love that question. So, um, consulting comes in lots of different flavors. But essentially, um, uh, it's small groups of people. Consultants usually work in teams. So, it's teams that help clients, mostly um, private companies, but also public sector companies, solve problems that are outside of, that are normally outside of the normal business. And so think about buying or selling a company, right? So if you're, if you're Coca-Cola, what you do is you produce beverage. If you want to acquire a company like Coke has done throughout its years, um, uh, you will often bring in advisors who specialize in buying and selling companies, right? Same thing is true if you want to implement a technology, right? Again, I, I make beverage or I make furniture or I'm an airline. My job is not, um, you know, necessarily to know how to implement big software packages. So they'll bring in specialty teams that specialize in that, that actually help them go and do that. Um, it might be about a new product launch, right? So We've been considering uh, this launch or this launch. Can you help us think through what is the better opportunity? Or um, geographic market entry. We think there's more growth in Southeast Asia than there is in, in Western Europe. Could you help us you know, conceptualize and dimensionalize that opportunity? So it's things that are always adjacent to the, to the company's business that um, they may not have the expertise or the framework or the pattern recognition to, to address. And so com consulting companies come in and advise and help problem solve around, around, specific, uh, around specific issues. Um, who, who makes uh, a good consultant? Um, I love that question because um, it does not require any particular undergraduate major at all. Love the answer. Oh, okay. That's good. <laughs> That's it. Um, but tr truly, so um, um, you need to be um, you need to be curious. You need to um, enjoy solving problems. You need to enjoy working in a team. Um, you can, if you like, enjoy a lot of travel. One of the things that um, often goes with consulting is the opportunity to travel. If you like that and want to see the world, it's it's a it's a fun way. Uh, it's a fun way to do that. Um, you need to um, be able to um, very quickly build relationships uh, with people. And so I think you need to be authentic and, and collaborative and, and compassionate. I think that's probably underestimated in consulting. If you think about the way in which we work, um, we will have small teams, three, four, five, six people, eight people um, that get together 
um, somewhat randomly for 8, 10, 12 weeks in a different city. Oftentimes, you won't know anybody that um, is on the, on the study with you or on the team with you, and they'll throw you in the team room to solve a particular client problem. So you very quickly need to be able to um, build relationships, take ownership, problem solve, be collaborative, be kind. And so, um, you know, we, we do a lot of screening for people. At the end, it's, it's do we want this human in our locker room, mm. right? Because McKinsey prioritizes culture so much. Yeah, and it, we certainly do. Like, so we, we're unique in that we are um, a global singularity. A lot of consulting firms um, actually have country-specific partnerships, right. and they operate as a global network, right? Um, and so the ability to drive culture as a singularity across a network is a lot harder, mm-hmm. right? So we are truly one firm. And what that means is that you can, you know, take an associate from Tokyo and a BA from Buenos Aires and an engagement manager from Stockholm, Sweden, and throw them in a team room in New York, and they all know the ways in which we work. There is no, how do you do it in Japan? How do you do it in Argentina? How do you do it in Sweden? Immediately, everybody knows their roles. Everybody's been brought up in the McKinsey methodologies. And so it allows us to very quickly um, very quickly collaborate. The very first study I did with McKinsey, um, the engagement manager was an undergraduate music major wow. with a minor in math and a PhD in psychology. That's that was, awesome. That was the engagement <laughs> manager. Um, the associate partner on it was a human capital specialist from Lima, Peru. And um, the associate on it was um, uh, a Harvard Business School grad from Helsinki, Finland. Um, Three awesome ladies, none of which knew anything about technology at all. Zero, zero. They were just super smart, super collaborative, super curious, great teammates, and were curious and willing to figure it out with me. And and it's always stuck with me when people are like, you know, do I have to be a business manager? I'm like, well, my very first engagement manager was a music major and we did a technology project. So like, <laughs> And you were an English major. And I was an English major, exactly. Of course, we didn't tell the client any of this. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're going to be listening to this. <laughs> right, exactly. So we, we, we led with CIO of Coca-Cola. But, um, yeah, but so, so I, I think that's it. I mean, certainly there's a level of, of you know, intellectual capability that um, is required for the problem solving, but any Notre Dame student would be. That, you know, more than able to. That's amazing to, to hear. Yeah. As an anthropology major here, mm-hmm. I sometimes feel imposter syndrome in the consulting recruiting process just because everyone that I'm kind of like it, like competing with um, or who are in the process with me are business majors and they have all these resources, the support of Mendoza, and I feel like I'm just trying to worm my way in and like not necessarily belong, but hearing the a music major, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we're still friends. She's awesome. She did her PhD at Rice. Um, yeah, su- super smart, super smart person. All right, so you've given us great advice for your students to follow. What advice should college students ignore? Uh, wow. <laughs> um, so the first one would be... Um, 
I, I think the trap around, you know, compensation equaling happiness, I think. Completely agree. Um, so, again, we have to put in perspective because the universe of opportunities that are available to Notre Dame students are top 10% opportunities. Yes. So we tend to compare ourselves to people that have marginally better opportunities without having sort of a broader broader perspective. So I would caveat it with that first. But um, I, I think um, if, I mean, yeah, the, the, the idea would be not to, not to chase the salary and not to chase the comp. I mean, if you're going to chase something, chase the people, mm. right? I mean, at the end of the day, when you're in the team room, if you're in the team room with a bunch of people that you don't like, but you make $10 more than your classmate, you're not going to be any happier, right? If you make $10 less, but you're working with people that you think are just awesome and give you energy and you love to work with, it matters a lot. Um, and so playing the long game on, on compensation, on money, knowing, again, your starting point, I, I think is probably the right way to play it. Trust the process. Yeah, I love that answer. Yeah, I agree. So, Rob, what did the words dream job mean to you your senior year of college, and what does dream job mean to you now? Yeah, that's funny, Jared. I, I don't know if I had a dream job. I, I, I don't know that if I had, you know, I would say there were attributes of a dream job that I probably had, so technology being one of them just because I, I enjoy it. Um, working in working with people that I liked, um, I think would have been part of it. But yeah, I, I, do, I don't know if I, I, if I had like a, there, there wasn't like one job that I like sort of narrowed my focus on as a senior year, uh, at Notre Dame. Um, I can't even remember back ever thinking of, of a dream job. Um, Honestly, that's very reassuring. Cause I think a lot of students right mm -hmm. now are just, especially liberal arts students don't know exactly what, like you said, major equal yeah. career. Like they don't know which direction they want to go in. So hearing that when you were graduating college, you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do. For sure you didn't not. have a dream job specified for you is very reassuring. Yeah, for sure. And, and some people do. Some people know that they want to be a developer. Some people know they want to be an accountant. Yeah. Some people know they want to be a doctor. My Ella, um, you know, is is singularly focused on law school. She wants to be a litigator. Um, I didn't have that at all, for sure. I mean, I, I did not know. Um, my dream job now, um, I'm doing it. Like, so, um, so McKinsey for me uh, is probably the, the finest community of people that I've been a part of since I was on campus. And so... Um, and it's not because everybody's super smart or we get to solve really cool problems for really cool companies. That That's sort of the spice of life and the variety that I think, um, you know, keeps it fun and interesting and engaging. But I think people underestimate our kindness as a community. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what makes it more of a dream job for me than all the cool stuff we get to work on. That's awesome. So who are the three kinds of people you're going to meet in life slash career? I remember we discussed this. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if there are three people types, but there's sort of three groups of people that I, three groups that I put put people in. Um, th there is group one, which is the people that you love to work with. I mean, these are the people that you seek out opportunities to put it in a, in a consulting context. 
I want to work on their projects with their clients, with that group of people every time because they're super energizing. We have a lot in common. They're fun. They're like they're the, the, the people that you most want to work with. And then there's a second category that's not quite that first category, but it's probably the majority of people. Um, people that you get along with, that you can work with, that you um, have no sort of negative reaction to. It's mostly positive. It's not your sort of super favorite people, but it's like that next group of people. Um, and then there's this third group of people that you're, you immediately know that you or maybe learn over time that you don't want to work with, mm. right? And there are people now that I will choose not to work with, not, not because they're necessarily, um, you know, you know, a bad human per se, but just not people that I get along with great, that I love their style, that I love the way that they collaborate or work with people. And so I, I purposefully avoid working with people in, in, that, in that third group unless, you know, there's some situation where I have to do it. And I think as long as you spend your life spending most of the time working with people in categories one and two, mm -hmm. you'll be happy, right? And yeah. the more you can sort of engineer to avoid people in, in category three, I think that'll serve you well too. So be honest, Rob, which category does Jared fall under? <laughs> well, there's a fourth category. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a category of one, as we call it. And there's You're Jared. so special, Jared. <laughs> I'm going to end it with that and just know that that was probably a very positive sentiment. So the next question I have, my final question is, um, to piggyback off of what Lucy asked about what bad advice do college kids get that they should ignore, once they're in your world, uh, in your profession, what sorts of advice or bad recommendations do you feel like young professionals in consulting get that they should also probably not take too much stock in? Um, I would say, to, so the, the, the I, I don't know if it's bad advice, but the, the advice that I would tend to have a young person ignore would be um, to focus too early, mm -hmm. right? And so I think... Um, for most people, Lucy, like you talked about, they don't know exactly where their passion lies. And if you apply it to a, a consulting framework, um, you know, if you think about the industries that we serve, so retail and consumer and banking and insurance and healthcare and public sector, right? And the things that we work on from strategy to technology to more acute topics like systems or pricing or whatever, um, I doubt anybody could put their finger right in the matrix mm -hmm. graduating from Notre Dame and say, I want to work on pricing for retail, right? They would have, they would have no idea, yeah. right? And so, um, and if they do, that's amazing. Like, uh, go, go, go chase it. But I would say do as many different things as possible. If you think about your first few years um, in consulting as a learning curve where you're sort of plotting experiences over time, mm -hmm. right? Um, you want a steepest curve as possible, yeah. right? You want as many experiences in a shorter period of time as possible. Um, and to, the other thing that I would add is the only way that you're going to impact the slope of that line, um, besides the two inputs of, of experience over time, is to constantly seek feedback, mm. right? The one way to like grow that sort of knowledge line is to just constantly ask how you're doing. And so the second piece of advice would be never suffer in silence. Never, mm -hmm. like, never miss an opportunity to seek, to seek feedback. Um, we're a feedback culture, so it's expected and easy for us. Not every company is, but mm -hmm. um, there's never a downside in asking for it. Very true. Um, Rob, what are you scared of most right now professionally? 
Yeah. So that, that's I've never thought of that question. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I We're mean, supposed to catch you off guard. Yeah. So. Yeah. You, you, you caught me off guard. Um, I would say um, I would say losing sight of the fact. Again, this is in in the context of what I do and who I do it with would be losing sight of the fact that the world is changing and people are changing, mm. right? I think um, there there are, it would be easy for somebody like me and my age to bring um, sort of a mindset that doesn't match the mindset of a young person graduating today, whether that has to do with purpose, whether that has to do with balance, whether that has to do with very specific things related to, um, you know, sustainability or mm. things like that. And for me to not be open to change and for we as a community to think of ourselves as sort of a static entity. So I would say the thing that I would be scared of is that we, um, that we're not open to change. Mm. I would say you have nothing to worry about, Rob. You seem, just the fact that you're thinking about it is... Awesome. Yeah, I agree. And the fact that you you're in touch enough with the youth to know to go on the You're Probably Okay podcast. Oh yeah. That's just shows <laughs> your head's in the right place. Your priorities are straight. You could have been doing a lot on a football Friday and you knew Yeah, exactly. This is where yeah, you should Co- be. Coach Freeman asked me to come in and talk to the team and I said, Whoa, 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 whoa time out. I am fully committed at ten o'clock on Friday. Sorry, exactly. Go get Coach Holtz. <laughs> All right, Rob. Well, thank you so much for spending the time yeah, and speaking you, with Rob. us today and sharing your story. I think I speak for my fellow students when I say that it's been incredibly motivating to hear, and we're so fortunate that you're a part of the Notre Dame alumni family. I'd love to hear about more, more about what's next for you. So what are you working on right now, and how can we help you achieve any of your goals? Oh, I, I appreciate that. So, uh, well, thank you for having me, first of all. Um, this is the most special place in the world for me and a family that I'll always feel a part of, and this notion of coming home has always been true for me. It's with, you know, I set foot on campus uh, 35 years ago, August, as a as a just recently turned 18 um, year old high school senior. So for 35 years, it's been been home for me in one way or another. Um, what am I working on right now? So, um, so it's funny at my age. At, so I'm I'm 53. I actually think about um, what I want to do next. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think a lot about that. Um, So, and I, there are some very specific things that I think that I want to do, continue to travel. I'd love to teach and do things like that. So there's a little bit of of planning for what's next that starts to happen at at my age. The, you know, from from a client perspective, I, I'm working on some really cool studies with really um, cool clients that are going through major transformations, and and I just want to see them through to the end. That's a really rewarding thing. So there's some short-term things for for specific clients, um, and then there's some longer-term things as I think about my next chapter. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rob. Thanks, Jared. And yeah. go Irish. Go Irish. Go Irish. Beat Tigers.